when my original business partner and I left to start Big Spaceship, when we told them we were going to leave, they said, oh, if you sign this contract saying you can't take these people or these clients, we'll give you a piece of work on your way out, your first piece of work. The funny thing is that they gave me the list of clients that we couldn't speak to, and I said, well, you can't keep me from talking to Andy at Miramax because I went to college with him. And he ran Interactive at Miramax back in the 90s. And um, our very first competitive pitch was against our old company, a two-person company against a 60-some-person company. I'm Shreen Patek, and this is Starting Out. To today's podcast, where I take the personal route with the movers and shakers in the marketing world to find out their stories, how they became the leaders they are today, and what's their special power that makes their craft so remarkable. On today's show, Michael Leibowitz is the founder and CEO of creative agency Big Spaceship. Founded in 2000, the agency was born at a time when it felt like the name of the company was an exercise in irony. Digital barely existed. And here was this agency trying to get in on a non-existent business. Back then, Michael opened the doors to the shop in Brooklyn's Dumbo, which at the time was a cheap area to open offices, and digital work was all about websites. Today, call it hard work or simple serendipity, Big Spaceship has grown with over 100 employees and a Harvard Business School case study or two to its name. But most of the biggest things in Michael's life have happened with no plan. He went from Boston to New York without a plan. He turned down the only job he applied for after graduation without a plan. He rented an apartment and decided to stay in New York without a plan. But behind all of this, there's always been a framework, something he learned when at 13, his dad, a university professor, handed him a birthday gift. When I was maybe 12, 13 years old, he gave me a stereo. And at that time, a stereo was a big stack of components and speakers and a turntable. And and that was great. And I was super excited. My own music uh, in my room. But the real gift was... He gave me my own choice of record, because it was vinyl, every other week until my next birthday. So he gave me a collection of my own, and he renewed that part of the gift for many years afterwards. I remember buying the Police Synchronicity, which is great. That's great. But then I also remember buying... I'm pretty impressed with your 12-year-old taste so far. I also remember buying Quiet Riot's Metal Health. So, you know, don't be too impressed, but... All right, I'm back down. It's all kind of... (laughs) great in its own way. But over those years, my taste got more focused. I had I learned more sort of classic rock stuff of my own. My dad wasn't a Zeppelin fan, but I became a Zeppelin fan. He didn't say, here's the music you should listen to. Here's what's important. He certainly shared lots of music with me. We listened, he taught me about the Beatles and Bob Dylan and all sorts of great stuff. But it was such an insightful gift. Maybe the best way of encapsulating a lifetime of gifts that he's given me it is so profound in retrospect it sounds sort of small but it really is maybe one of the most defining things about how I look at the world because he gave me the framework of something he gave me guardrails don't just here's a here's a cash card spend it on whatever you want he gave me a, a creative framework but also he gave me agency within that and it allowed me to find my passion and it says a lot about him, but I think it, it taught me in some very fundamental way the power of frameworks, right? Like if you just put enough 
organization around something just to keep it on track and then let things go, make mistakes, discover things, buy an album just because the cover looks cool, and then realize that that was a terrible idea, <laughs> whatever it might be. Um, so you grew up as the kid of college professors, professor. I think kids of academics are always fascinating. I'm one, two professors, same thing. How did, how did sort of being almost in this, in that kind of environment, was that, did that put pressure on you as a student? Did that ever put pressure on you to, to sort of care more about academics because you had sort of, you know, supposed kind of people who were basically teaching? I mean, they would teach all day and then come home and teach you at night. No, I, I had no pressure at all. I, I was clever enough to coast through most of school and do well because I was not a very tenacious student. I sort of said, oh, I'll just figure it out when it's time. Uh, and and then when I got to college, I ended up deciding pretty late to major in film. Huh. And I spent my last two years doing kind of nothing but filmmaking. What about filmmaking kind of appealed to you? Other than the obvious stuff. I mean, it's so cool. <laughs> oh, that's um, what I meant by the obvious stuff. <laughs> no, I, I think film is essentially collaborative it's really hard to make a movie by yourself. That's why the credit lists on Avengers films are so long. <laughs> it's creative and technical in equal measure. And I think that that really appeals to me because I don't, I've never looked at it as an either or thing like many people do, or at least discuss it in those terms. I geeked out on the cameras, but I also geeked out on how Scorsese composed a shot. So I think it, it appealed to me also because it, wasn't letters it wasn't what my parents did and at that point in my life I'm sure that I needed to rebel a bit but then I also really liked my parents and I also really loved the creative world much. right like if I was a real rebel I would have become a banker and ah. I would have been a terrible failed banker which is really funny. The, re the rebellion against my parents would be would a banker, banking. a lawyer. And I, yeah, not, like, I can't not believe you're not an beat. artist. <laughs> you know, business person was pretty far off the radar. When after you graduated college, kind of what, what was going on around you that sort of was inspiring you? Well, I graduated in 94 and <laughs> I only applied for one job. I was very naive and very optimistic, even in a terrible economy. I applied for a job at Avid, and they were up in Boston, where I was from, in the Boston area. And I hadn't heard back, and I was just kicking it at home. And a friend called and was like, we've got an apartment on the Upper West Side. Want to come? Sure, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> I like, threw some clothes in a bag and came down, and uh, it was a... There were four of us on air mattresses in an unfurnished one bedroom on 110th and Broadway with cockroaches as big as my index finger. The real New York experience. Yeah, it was it was amazing. And uh, what was what was kind of the plan? There there was really no plan. It was well, I applied for that job and I'm one gonna, job. I'm going to wait to see, you know, if I if I get that and in the meantime I'm going to hang out here. We lived on almost nothing. I mean, we bought pots and pans to cook our rice and beans from a homeless person on the corner of 110th Broadway at like 3 a.m. for like 50 cents that were clearly stolen and used. I remember, I remember really clearly 
learning North and South and how much that unlocked New York for me. I mean, I didn't go North much except up to Tom's diner, but, uh, but I remember somebody pointed me South and I walked all the way down to the East village from 110th and, uh, and spent the entire day and, and there was no going back. And I actually got offered a job at Avid. I was already hooked on New York and I wasn't leaving. So you said no. I said no and found an apartment in an unknown neighborhood called Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn where nobody lived. It seemed very expensive at the time, but we there were three roommates, three bedrooms, three full bathrooms on a duplex and we paid 425 each. My god. Uh-huh. And I started sending out resumes. I probably sent out a hundred or more. This is when I realized that my plan, had, I had put the cart well before the horse. And I, I had gotten the apartment. I had turned down my only opportunity. So um, where'd you hear back from? <laughs> I got one call. I got called in to a trade magazine for music video. And I got that job. I got it. I landed it. And I was really excited. And I was an editorial assistant. Which meant? Which meant that I did all of the grunt work for a, you know, I think it was a six-person publication. It was when music video was a thing. It wasn't just MTV. There were like small regional music video shows all over the place. I was excited because I was connected to music. Yeah, it was the first time I had an office job. It was close-knit and it was fun. And I got to go to a lot of shows and I got a lot of free CDs. The, The hard part was that while I certainly wasn't the lowest paid person in New York, I think I was probably the lowest salaried person in New York. I made $15,600 a year. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. After this break, Michael will talk about how he met the love of his life, the internet. But right now, a quick break to tell you about Digiday Plus. Digiday Plus is our premium membership product. You should join our community so you can get a firsthand look at how digital is transforming the world of media and marketing. You get Digiday Magazine, exclusive research, and lots of invitations to very exclusive member-only events. It's only $33 a month, so please sign up at digiday.com. And for you, because you're listening to our podcast, we have a discount offer. If you want to get 25% off your subscription, enter the code starting out at checkout. Now back to the episode. So how did you manage? More rice and beans? A lot of rice and beans. The thing I loved about the leaner years was that you you still end up going out all the time. And so you end up in these cool barter economies. You would just find yourself like, I know a person at this restaurant who will slide me an extra dish and like this and that. And uh, that's a great skill to have. Yeah. To be able to make those connections and Yeah, it was strangely in my life the short period of time that I had it mine was always trading music for goods and services because <laughs> I had free CDs. I really wish you had a banjo that you just walk around with, like a song for a sandwich. Right. Let me play. Let me play. What happened next? Uh I lasted about a year, almost exactly a year and felt the pull to go out west. And I went to Portland. I mean, again, like no plan, no nothing. And I worked in a record store for a while. I worked as a ceramic technician for a while. This uh, big factory of artists and artisans who were paid under the table by this crazy guy who would make and sell uh, these sort of perfect little porcelain dishes and pots to like museum gift shops throughout the country. 
What about that time do you sort of remember today and say, oh, that was like I learned something from there or that's something you apply even to this day? I certainly learned a lot about the value of things. So I, I had fully immersed myself in the world of records, vintage records, and we were in a CD world at that point. And I got an employee discount my tiny little, this was a wage and it was a low one. Uh, but I still spent, you know, half of my money on records. And after I left the job, when I knew I was coming back to New York, I had about a month and a half, I think, where I supported myself by going to the St. Vincent de Paul as is shop where all of the records were a dime. And I would go at eight o'clock in the morning on the days that they got shipments in. So I would be the first person there and I would pull out anything that I knew I could sell for more at the resale shops. And I supported myself uh, buying and selling records, just not for a long time, but for a while. Um, That's how I I stayed fed. And, uh, you know, that's a a good sort of fundamental lesson to learn, like how to hustle. Yeah. When did kind of the internet come into your life? When I was a teenager, early teenager, we had a modem at home, which was kind of unusual at that time, uh, and CompuServe. And I got really into CompuServe and all the text-based games and all that stuff. And then I download, I figured out how to download software to host my own bulletin board system. Uh, CompuServe was just a giant bulletin board system. The funny thing is we only had one phone number and only one modem, so only one person could connect to my bulletin board at a time. Uh, Not very scalable. It wasn't scalable, but I did actually like create a thing. People logged in, they posted messages, we shared files. And, uh, and so really early on, I was starting to play with that in college. I remember my senior year of college, a friend said, you've got to see this and showed me the web, which was mosaic. So it was the mosaic browser. It was the first visual browser. And I remember the first site I went to, they must have called it up. I have no idea how they found it. It was my neighbors. Uh, it was a German art collective called the Dead Chickens, and they had a website. Was there a point at which you said, there's a career for me with the internet? And I don't know what that is, but was it after sort of, you know, res- the sort of reseller? I find it interesting also that it was music, because I think music and the internet sort of had this great potential connection. Yeah. It, it, the connections keep going in yeah. my world. I got a call. I started getting calls and talking to friends back east when I was out at the sort of tail end of my desire to be in Portland after about a year. We were all struggling. The, the economy had been crap since we'd gotten out of school. And start talking to people. Oh, yeah, we're like making more money than we ever thought we would make in the Internet. I'm like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And... I spoke to a few people and I had already been interested in design at that point and had a little sort of half side business designing resumes for friends in PageMaker. And I talked to a friend from college who ended up working at Blue Note Records and he had just hired a small web design company in Boston to design bluenote.com and offered to introduce me. Uh And I got an internship and with 
tail somewhat between legs, moved back in with my mom so that I could learn how to make the web properly uh, with a little bit of design skill, but not a lot. <laughs> and that that's really where it kicked off. And they, their specialty was in sites for music. music. So I worked on fish.com and aerosmith.com and a few other things. What happened next? Then I wanted to get back to New York and I came back and you lived in Brooklyn. I lived in Brooklyn. This time I was in Borm Hill and I was paying my rent under the table uh, in cash at the hardware store below my apartment. And again, out of the print edition of the village voice, I, I found an ad uh, that was charming and different little witty. I don't remember what it said, but it just was, it hooked somehow. It was not the standard mm -hmm. thing. And I went in for an interview and it was at a web agency. Uh, and I got the job and my job was to be the producer in quotes for the Bravo television website. And that meant that I was the designer, HTML coder and client contact for everything. The site. Yeah. I was just me a site for a basic cable network that was in 80 million homes. It's so interesting how like, cause it was such early days that the expectations were so low. I actually redesigned the site and launched it without talking to anybody. <laughs> just pressed a button. I just was like, I'm going to redesign this cause it's really not good. And so I did. Have you tried to keep that kind of that idea at your own company today? The thing I try to pull forward from that time there's really only one thing because the technology was awful and it was totally underinvested in and it was hard to get anything done. But before there were best practices, before there were even really books about this stuff, it was just a culture of deconstructing what you see, figuring it out and having an idea and saying, I don't know if you can do that or not. Let's figure it out. The let's figure it out is the thing that got lost as things got more quote unquote sophisticated. There's a lot of, I've seen something, so I want to duplicate it rather than I want to create something new. So just the, the attitude of let's figure it out. How can we do this? So this is where a framework came in, like an attitude that you always want to be figuring something out. I spent about three years at that company, uh, that was when the bubble was fully expanded. <laughs> and I think I had an overinflated sense of my value to the company hmm. uh, because we were, my uh, partner at the time and, and I were doing all of the sort of critical work and all the most important work for the company. I don't think I really understood business at all, but... I also now know in retrospect that they didn't either. <laughs> well, what happened? I had youthful hubris. It was really just, you know, the, the nature of being in your 20s and good at something for the first time, like good at something professionally. And good at something that was really hot. Yes, yes. And knowing that I could go someplace else and do well. And I don't think it's sort of, I don't, I don't think it's my nature, but I think it was... Uh, it was a moment in time where they, the business had sort of fallen apart. I was the 12th person hired. We had gotten up to 50, 60 people. 
we were doing some really ambitious, interesting stuff for that time. Now it would seem ridiculous. The owners kind of lost the script. They stopped being about the work. They stopped being about the team. They were about how they were going to go public because that's what everybody was about at that time. Uh, they were about turning down giant buyout offers because they're going to go public. And they started just going off and promising things to clients, potential clients, not including us in the process and saying, okay, this is what we promised, go build that. And they didn't know whether it could be built or not. The interesting thing, the opportunity that the most valuable opportunity I was given by that company is that their niche was cable television. Mm -hmm. And that was really valuable because we got to, when there was lots of money in the economy, we got to work with broadband. You know, everybody was designing stuff for dial-ups, mm -hmm. 56K modems. We were creating broadband content before anybody knew what that was, what it even meant. There weren't video codecs, so you couldn't just jam video through like you do now. You had to come up with something. And we didn't even know what it meant. We didn't even know what it meant to have that much bandwidth to work with. There were 5,000 cable modems in the entire state of New York, and we were creating content for them. I mean, that's incredible, this, this confluence of money in the economy, a, a totally new sort of platform, not even a platform, a totally new enabling technology. Um, and so we, we got to really experiment a lot. And that was powerful because we got a very early sense of what the next probably 10 years of the web uh, or at least up until, you know, up until the iPhone, basically, mm -hmm. what that was going to look like, what that content was going to be. When the boom ended, the bust happened. Yes. That's when I started Big Spaceship because I'm a genius. <laughs> You're a genius. Um, I don't know. What was going through your mind? It was an interesting time to start a company. Why did you? <laughs> well, because I, I was, again, like just naive it's not like I was reading the paper every day and learning about macroeconomic conditions. And I thought we can make really cool stuff that most people can't make. We didn't have a business development plan. We also never signed employment contracts. And so when, when my original business partner and I left to start Big Spaceship, when we told them we were going to leave, they said, oh, if you sign this contract <laughs> saying you can't take these people or these clients uh, will give you a piece of work on your way out, your first piece of work. And we said, well, that sounds great. That was our seed money. Okay. Um, the funny thing is that they gave me the list of clients that we couldn't speak to. And I said, well, you can't keep me from talking to Andy at Miramax because I went to college with him. You did. I did actually oh, okay. go to college. When he walked in the door, we weren't friends in college. We had friends in but common. But he walked in. I was like, hey. And he ran Interactive at Miramax back in the 90s. And um, the, Miramax was their newest client. And they, in, with all the hubris of that time, they could have said, who cares if you went to college with them? Uh, they were like, sure, no problem. So I got that one exception. I got a project that gave us all the money we needed to have time to figure stuff out. We started calling Andy and saying, Hey, 
And our very first competitive pitch was against our old company. <laughs> you for, won. And we won. You won. It was the most triumphant moment of my career, I got to say. It's a, a two-person company against a 60-some-person oh. company. The, the Miramax thing turned out to be a gift in a whole bunch of different ways. Not that Miramax was easy to work with. They weren't. And obviously... Miramax now in the past six months has a very different tone to it than then they were just like maniacal desk throwing people. Um, Not even chairs, desks. Yeah. But basically we did the work for these films the way that we thought it should be done. And so we did it very differently than it had been done. So our very first, it wasn't our first project with them, um, but our, our first site for a film was for the original Bridget Jones's diary. And we approached it, you know, the, the old approach was here are press notes, here are actor bios, here's a synopsis, here's some aim icons to download and wallpapers to download. And we thought we can, this is fun. You know, for me, it was filmmaking, right? It was, we've got a story, we've got themes, let's pull the themes in. And so we did that site as though you were Bridget Jones's diary, you were Bridget Jones, and you started doodling on the site and writing your own commentary on it in your own handwriting and things like that. So just it was it was bringing a thematic conceptual approach to it, which hadn't been done. And we did that on a few things. The second project we did was for the movie Serendipity, which I'm sure you remember with Kate Beckinsale and you remember uh, John I Cusack. watch it every week. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Um, and that was a big one. I actually still refer to that site as one of the most important pieces of work that we did because it was 2001. The internet was still about sort of single self-contained things, you know, it was, or even it was about pages and we were making single self-contained experiences using flash and really pushing flash to its limits. And we managed to sell Miramax on the idea of a site that had no navigation. You arrived and you were given a series of multiple choice questions that were themes from the film. Uh, and based on your choices, it would send you to different places, all locations in New York based on the film. Yes, exactly. The interesting thing that we did though, is we, it wasn't common to even have a database or anything. You weren't saving information at that time. So we were saving, we were tracking the answers to the question. So let's say there are 10 possible questions. You answer five of them Mm -hmm. in a particular order, in a particular way, and that sends you on your path. We tracked that, and then we matched you up with the last person who had traveled the site and answered the questions in the same order, the same way. And at the end of the experience, you put your, you put a little star on a map of the United States with your first name and your last initial, and it shows you who, who your soulmate is on the site, someplace else that had done the same thing. And it was connecting people. You know, this was, this was a novel concept. Now it's everything. Now the entire internet is rewired <laughs> is around people, connection? not pages. Mm-hmm. But then it was so novel and it took off. It went crazy. I think we had a million people go through the experience without the, media. I think I might have done that test. It was, I mean, it was insane. <laughs> it was insane. We had people, it was only a map of the U.S. because it was only a domestic campaign. And we had people pl- pl- plotting stars in the ocean, you know, <laughs> saying, I'm in Norway or whatever. Do you mm. believe in serendipity? Sure. 
Of has, course. Have there been serendipitous moments in your career, one you can think of? All of success, not mine, all of success is at least 50% being in the right place at the right time. I developed a set of skills that were in and of themselves valuable enough to start a company because of the moment in time where those skills existed. The skills now are meaningless. You couldn't start a company based on that. But AI and machine learning skills right now might be enough to build a business off of. So you at least half of all success is serendipity. At least half. That's, I, 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 I cannot lay claim to foresight and genius. I was interested in something and I was in the right place at the right time with the right level of ambition and the right level of naivete. And that's not to take anything away. I also have managed to keep the company going for 18 years and that's taken a whole lot of face plants and, uh, and the learning that comes from those face plants. But it, it's all serendipity, 100%, everything. That's Michael Leibowitz, and that's a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you like our show, please subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. While you're there, leave us a five-star review. I'm Shereen Pacek. We'll see you next week. Thank you.